the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Pat Williams Power Hour, AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. This is your hour when Orlando Magic Senior Vice President Pat Williams sits down and speaks with authors who have written books on topics of interest and insight for listeners like you. And now, here's your host, Pat Williams. Welcome once again to the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour, right here on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word, in Orlando. We're so glad that uh, you join in with us on the weekend. And so's our engineer. He just goes by the name, Gabe. That's it. Uh, Andrew Hertliska does the producing. And uh, John Hopper is with us from Houston, Texas, Area Director for Search Ministries. Uh, We're going to be talking about his book, Questioning God. Answers to questions worth asking. John, first of all, welcome to Orlando. It's uh, nice to catch up with you. Oh, it's great to be with you today, Pat. John, i got to ask you, first of all, what is Search Ministries? Well, Search is all about getting on people's turf. So, you know, so oftentimes uh, Christians try to get people to come to church or to Christian events, and uh, we do the opposite of that. We go to where people are. We go to their offices, to their country clubs, to the to their homes and just uh, develop relationships and friendships and and allow them to ask any questions they have about God or Christianity or the Bible. Uh, tell me about your new book. Yeah, new book, Questioning God. Really, this book is made up of 15 questions that uh, we at Search have found people uh, ask us over and over again. And so we decided to sort of get it down on paper, some of the ways that we, we answer those questions. Well, I'm uh, I'm excited about uh, diving into this with you. So let's let's get going. Uh, number one, life is good, so why be concerned with God? That's your first question. Yeah, I think there's a lot of people in that place today where they say, you know, hey, if you need a little religion, that's fine, but I'm good without God. And and uh, so maybe right off the bat, we've got to convince people to even take a look to see whether there is a God and. I think it's really helpful for people to understand that if there isn't a God, if we're just sort of accidental creatures or spit out by the cosmos, that there's no real purpose to life. Like we're just like scrabble pieces that have been thrown to the to the floor, and uh, and we're just biochemical machines. So when we say we love something, well, we're just having a chemical response. There's no such thing as as love, and of course, there's no justice either. So. Uh, because there's no real right or wrong. Things just kind of happen as they do. So without a God, there's a lot of things that go missing. So I think it's worthwhile to look into whether there's a God or not. Uh, John, second question, why should I believe God exists? Mm. Well, I think there's a lot of evidences there. So it's far more than a fairy tale for sure. So, uh, you know, one piece of the evidence, I offer several in my book, but one piece is just the remarkable fine-tuning of our our universe. If we look at the physical constants, for example, like gravity, if gravity was just a little bit more, a little bit less, life wouldn't be able to exist anywhere in the universe. And there's dozens of these physical constants that have to be all lined up in order for uh, there to be life in the universe. And if you were to go into a room that was all messy and then come back an hour later and it's all clean, you wouldn't think that just happened by accident. You'd think somebody organized it all. And I think this fine-tuning points to that. My guest is John Hopper. His book is called Questioning God, uh, the 15 questions most uh, asked in, in John's ministry. Uh, here's question three, John. Can we know the truth about anything, especially about God? Mm. Yeah, sometimes people wonder, like, well, maybe it's your truth or my truth. Can we really know the truth about anything? But we certainly act as though we can know truth. Uh, even today, it's you know, we sat down, had breakfast. Uh, we believe that the food wasn't tainted or poisoned. We actually risked our life <laughs> uh, based on that belief of what is true. And, and we did that because there's uh, pieces of evidence that led us uh, 
to believe that indeed um, the food wasn't poisoned. And I think if we use that sort of same sort of tactic as we sort of go forward in life, maybe we can't prove things like with 100% certainty, but there's enough evidence for us to even risk our lives uh, based on certain things being true. And I think that's true for God as well. May not know everything about God, but we can know enough to sort of take steps forward with the belief that he's, he's real and true. Now, uh, here's another one for you. How can a person believe in God in this scientific age? Yeah, so I think there's sort of a little bit of a an urban myth that uh, science and religion, they can't coexist. And one of the things that the research shows us, some extensive research, is that elite scientists across the globe do not see a conflict between science and religion. Like only 15% of them do. So if 85% of scientists don't see this inherent conflict between religion and science, why are we making there, there to be sort of a conflict that, that really doesn't exist? When science sort of shows us things, it, it doesn't sort of push God out. It just shows us how God did it. So if we understand how water is boiling on the stove, it doesn't take away the fact that, you know, Grandma put the pot on the stove to start boiling in the first place. John, uh, here's an important question for you. Don't Christians use their faith as an emotional crutch? Well, it's possible that they, they do that, and that's not necessarily bad, because uh, um, sometimes we need need a crutch. Besides, it seems to me that uh, the crutch argument could be used of any belief system. So you could be an atheist and not really like authority, for example, people telling you what to do, so you sort of make up a world in which there is no God who might tell you something to do, and so that might give you some sort of a emotional peace in some ways. But uh, in the end, really what matters is, is there any credence to the crutch? So um, is there any evidence that the crutch exists? And uh, and I think in the case of Christianity or God, I think there's quite a bit of evidence that the crutch exists and is worth leaning on. I want you to get to the next question. This is question number eight. These are the 15 big questions that John Hopper's writing about. Haven't Christians caused more harm than good? Oh, mm. boy. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I mean, it's, there's no doubt that Christians have caused harm, and, and people even listening today, they can think of the Christian who's caused them harm. And that obviously can make us a bit le- leery, but um, truth be told, we've all caused harm. And so if we were to uh, uh, say, hey, I'm not going to listen to hypocrites, then we probably have to not listen to ourselves as well, because no one lives up to their own standards. I think what's important is to really evaluate claims and not just the people who make the claim. So if somebody said to you, hey, it's not good to murder people, and then they go murder someone, we don't then say, well, I guess that, you know, that this claim about murder, well, it's just not right and it's okay to murder people. We don't say that at all. We say that person was wrong, but the claim is right. And so I think we have to separate the two. John, let's go to um, question number seven. Why should I trust what the Bible has to say? Mm. That's a great question. I think a really reasonable question. Yeah, I think, first of all, it's helpful for us to recognize that the Bible has been copied well. So if it had been changed through all the centuries, then there wouldn't really be reason for us to listen to it. But there's great evidence because we have lots of old manuscripts of the Bible that uh, it has been copied faithfully. So we know that what we've got today is what we had originally. But then beyond that, there's a lot of evidence that points to the fact that what is there is accurate. And I think what's really great about the Bible is that it's not just wisdom sayings or or mythological stories. It's setting itself into an historical context. That is, it's talking about real places and people and events. And so we can fact check that. And the Bible does really well when we do that. There's just a lot of archaeological evidence that sort of supports the, the storyline of 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 the Bible. So I think we can take it as being reliable and trustworthy. Next question for you, Ken. Ken Hopper, our guest, the book, Questioning God. How can a rational person accept the miracle stories in the Bible? Well, ultimately, miracle stories are are sort of a God question. If there's a God who created this universe, uh, then healing someone, for example, well, that's child's play. So you know, if, if we sort of believe in the evidence of the existence of a God, a God who created this universe, then we ought to be open to the possibility of, of miracles. Now, 
even if it's a possibility, it doesn't mean they, ha- they happen. And so to see whether they happened or not and to have sort of confidence in that, we need to look at things like, well, is there a clear before condition and clear after condition? Was the person deaf and now they hear? And, and uh, did that uh, come about in such a way where they started to hear that we cannot be explained sort of by natural causes? And did it happen as a result of a prayer or coinciding with a command like the command of Jesus? And in that case, I think we can say, hey, not just a possibility that miracles happen, but they, they actually do happen. Number nine, isn't the Bible out of step with the times? Hmm. Well, it probably is out of step with every time. <laughs> so um, the Bible says the same thing from gener- generation to generation, but uh, you know what the culture stands up to be right and true is always changing. So I would anticipate that in every time, the Bible's sort of out of step, at least in some points. Now, personally, I, I really appreciate um, the plumb line that the Bible sets um, because it allows us, for example, to discern between competing voices. I, I love the story of MLK, and and he, um, uh, you know, he had was told by some people to to sort of be more violent in his approach and for some, from some people to sort of just shut up and be quiet. And he didn't take either of those approaches. If he looked at the biblical line and said, you know, neither way is right. This is the road I'm going to take. And, and I think we're all thankful for that. Now we get to this next question. If God is real, why is there so much evil and suffering? Mm. Yeah, there is a lot of evil and suffering. And I, I think we all can agree to that. And, but, you know, this question, it's not really a question just for the Christian. I think it's a question for everyone. Um, if you're an atheist, you still have to deal with the, the problem of evil and suffering. Like, how, how do you explain that? Um, personally, I think, I think Christianity really, really helps us make sense of suffering. Um, for example, we can't really call what we see in the world unjust unless there is, is a God. All we can say is that some people had sort of bad luck or good luck. It's only if there's a God who sets a standard that says, you know, these things are right and these things are wrong, these things are just, these things are unjust, that we're even able to say, hey, this, this thing that's happening, it's not right and it's not good. So, so rather than that sort of pain and suffering that sort of gives us angst sort of pointing away from God, it may actually point to the existence of God. Now let's move on to this question. With so many religions... Why say Christianity is the only way? I think it's a great question, right? So many different sort of religious perspectives, and uh, you know, we live in a pluralistic society where there's we've got a lot of friends and, and neighbors of, of different religions. Um, one of the things I think is important is that um, to recognize is that just because a claim is exclusive doesn't make it wrong. You know, sometimes it can be wrong if we say only men are good at math. That's not a not a good statement. But if we are, you know, at the top of a mountain and we've got a home and forest fires are coming and there's only one road down, <laughs> so then that's an exclusive statement when we ought to listen to it. So all religions make exclusive claims, and uh, I think we've got to sort of sort through those. And when we look at Christianity, the advantage that we have is that Jesus is an historical figure that we can sort of, again, fact check, and we can look at his claims— he claimed to be God, and then he authenticated those claims through the miracles and the fulfilled prophecy. And so, so we have this figure that really stands out from any other uh, religious figure, and I, I think that makes Christianity sort of worth following um, among the religions. I'm a good person. Isn't that enough? We have about 30 seconds, John. Mm. Yeah. Um well, we might be good relative to other people, but I'm not so sure we're good relative to God. If, if everything was sort of painted on the walls uh, of, of the room that we sit in right now, all our thoughts and our dreams and our actions and our inactions, I'm not so sure we'd feel comfortable before other people, let alone before, before God. So I think we need His mercy more than we need to sort of show Him our scorecard. Well, folks, we, we've got more with uh, John Hopper when we come back. Uh, if God is loving, why would he send anyone to hell? Uh, John Hopper is in Houston, his book, Questioning God. Uh, this is the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. It's the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. We will return. 
more of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment. AM 990 and FM 101.5. The Word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour, AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. Now, here's Pat. John Hopper is with us from Houston. We're talking about his book, Questioning God. Well, uh, we've got uh, uh, some fascinating questions, John, here at the end of your book. If God is loving, why would he send anyone to hell? Mm. How do you answer that, John? Yeah. Well, I think that God doesn't want to send anyone to hell, so I think that's what we see in Scripture. I, I think what we find in, in the Bible is that God describes this as all kind of riding towards a cliff, and out of love, He warns us not to go that way. Um, and then beyond that, I think He, he actually stands in the middle of the road, um, sort of waving His arms, saying, don't go this way, willing, to, and, and He did give up His own life for us in order to keep us from sort of going off the cliff. So so I think uh, although uh, Scripture and Jesus himself spoke of hell a great deal, um, it's not a place that God wants to send us. It's a place that he wants to rescue us from, and he's sort of gone out of his way to sort of keep us from going there. So in that way, I think even with the existence of, of, of hell, God expresses his great his great love for us. Now, here's another big one. Will God judge people who've never heard of Jesus? Yeah, I think it's a really good question. I, I always like when people ask that question because it, it means that they've it's sort of understood the message of Christianity. So Christianity isn't setting itself up as sort of one road among many. It's setting itself up as the way because Jesus himself said, I am the way and the truth and the, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. So when people ask this question, they they sort of understood that, and then they they wonder, well, what about the people who haven't heard? And yet, I'm not so sure that we can really say that people haven't heard. So um, I think that everyone can see the wonder of the of the universe, and and as a result, should probably just through natural intuition say, you know, there's got to be a God out there. In fact, people throughout all the ages have done that. I mean, God's also given us this sort of moral compass where we recognize that, boy, we can't even live up to our own standards, whatever those standards are. And so if that's the case, if there's a creator God out there, and we don't seem to be able to live up to even our own standards, let alone his, then we probably ought to be seeking mercy from that God. And I think if we do that, God is very good at getting the message of Jesus to us, whether it's through the airwaves like we're on right now or, or whether it's through somebody, you know, uh, bringing the message to us personally, or, or whether it's even through dreams and visions as we hear about in different parts of the world, God's able to get his message of, of Jesus to people. So I'm not so sure really how many people haven't heard today. Now, uh, here's the closing question in your book, John Hopper, our guest. If Christianity is true, where do I start? Well, I think where we start is by confessing our needs. So one of the things, right, that Christianity says is that that uh, we all fall short of God's standard. And, and as a result, there's a sort of this separation between us and God. And so there's a need there, and we need to recognize that. We need to recognize our own sort of failings to bring that bring that about. And then I think it's, it's a matter of sort of recognizing the gift that God has given us in Christ. Uh, that he is, is by grace and mercy is sort of extending this this offer to us to to be with him and so to thank him for what he's done through the death of Christ. And then I think you know once we've done that, once we've sort of expressed our need and thanked him for the gift that he's given us, we want to grow in our love for him. He's made us now part of his family, and we want to love him well, and we want to love what he loves well, which ultimately means loving people really well and learning what that means. So um, I think if every day we woke up, Pat, and we said, Lord, how can I love you well today? How can I love people well today? That uh, we would probably do real real well going forward. Um, and then uh, I think the other thing, Pat, that's really helpful is we sort of walk and grow in a relationship with God is just to begin to let him into every room, every room of our lives. So, you know, there's 
there's certain areas of our lives we want to kind of keep God out of. Oh, it's okay, he's in my church world, but I want him in my work world. <laughs> I don't want him in my recreational world or whatever the case might be. And, and God's good, though, and ultimately we want him in every room. He can, he can do a redesign that makes things a whole lot better. And so I, I think part of, sort of walking with the Lord is just beginning to let him into every room. John, I'm curious, uh, 15 questions in your book. Uh, how many good questions did you did you not get in the book? How many good questions did I leave out of the book? Is that what you asked? Yeah, in other words, if there was going to be a 16th question, uh, <laughs> what, what would it have been? Mm, boy, I'm not so sure. I've been asked that recently. So, um, uh, I mean, there's always sub-questions to all of these questions, right? So, um, uh, you know, for example, in regards to sort of the Bible and why, you know, can we believe it's true? We can say, well, okay, I, I believe it's historical, but why should I believe that it's from God, right? So that's a sort of a, say, a sub-question as to its trustworthiness. And so um, uh, I think there's sort of endless sub-questions to each of these, these questions. Fascinating indeed. I, I'm curious about the reaction you've gotten to your book, John. What uh, any uh, any interesting little tidbits? Yeah, you know what I've really been excited about, Pat, is that uh, it's not just been a book that's been helpful to Christians to know how to answer these questions, either for themselves or for for other people. But I've been really excited about the response for people that are sort of skeptical or seeking. Um, as they've read it, a, a lot of times the response has been, I, I, I had no idea that there was this much sort of evidence or information or there are this, these kinds of reasonable answers to these reasonable questions. And so uh, I think that's what I've sort of really appreciated um, is hearing that kind of response. John, I, I want to go back to my very first question about search ministries, mm. uh, where it's not getting people into the church, but you getting to mm. them. Uh, how does that work, and how do you do that, yeah. and and how do people respond? And I, I uh, I'm, I'm quite fascinated by that. It seems like mm-hmm. a really a tough job. Well, you know, I think in many ways, Pat is following every lead. So um, that is, I I meet someone and and befriend them. Maybe I take them to lunch or breakfast, or maybe I play tennis with them or some, or something else. And uh, and uh, as a result of that friendship, they uh, introduce me to to some other friend and begin to sort of develop a, a friendship there and conversations. And sometimes we, I'll, I'll gather a few of those that I've made friends with, and I say, hey, do you have any other friends that kind of have these kinds of questions? Let's all get together. You know, we can just do it around a fire pit in the backyard and and uh, see where it goes. And so uh, suddenly, you know, we've gone from one or two to 10 or 20 or 30 and, and uh, able to talk about these things. So it's really just following every kind of relational lead that I, that I can to to sort of get into people's lives and see what questions that they have about God and Christianity. John, what's your background? What kind of training have you had to be able to take on this job you've got? Yeah, well, <laughs> kind of a varied background, but sort of, you know, sort of the, my, my, my last degree, because I have four of them, <laughs> is, a, is, a, is a doctorate out of Biola University where I, I, I really studied these very questions. So, um, and, uh, I uh, spent some years doing that uh, formally through through Biola University in Southern California. Um, but uh, I've had some other training along along the way, so um, both uh, uh, secular and religious, you might say, to sort of prepare me to uh, have uh, conversations with people. John, in closing, what, what is the spiritual temperature in Houston, Texas? Mm-hmm. You know, Houston is a super diverse city, so. Um, and in fact, in some reports, it's the most diverse city in America. And I don't know how exactly that's judged or not, but we've got people kind of every background and every sort of ilk. And so, uh, in some parts of Houston, you've got people that are just very open to religion and to Christianity and other places, uh, uh very resistant to it. So, um, kind of have the whole, whole gamut and you can even kind of go, almost go neighborhood by neighborhood in some ways. So. I, I, I enjoy this kind of environment uh, um, where uh, you have some people to sort of stand with, but you also have people to be able to reach out to. And I think that was the heart of, of Jesus as well. So he, he wanted to keep looking out to where 
people were that maybe weren't on board yet and uh, and try to draw them in. My guest has been John Hopper, uh, the book Questioning God, Answers to Questions Worth Asking. We've got more. Stay with us here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. It's the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. We'll be right back. More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment. AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour, AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. Now, here's Pat. John Hopper, our guest in that first segment from Houston, uh, talking about his book, Questioning God, Answers to Questions Worth Asking. Well, we go from Houston to Seattle. There's Al Lopez, president and CEO of the Best Christian Workplaces Institute. His book is out, Road to Flourishing, Eight Keys to Boost Employee Engagement and Well-Being. Al, uh, nice to have you on, and welcome to Orlando. Yeah, thanks, Pat. It's a pleasure to be with you. I've got to ask you, uh, what is the Best Christian Workplaces Institute all about? Well, we believe that Christian-led workplaces should set the standard as the best, most effective places to work in the world, and uh, uh, that's really a deep passion of ours. We we do that by equipping and inspiring Christian leaders to create flourishing workplaces, and we believe that um, you know when a when a workplace culture is toxic, and I think everybody knows uh, what that feels like, uh, or at least has seen it. Uh, Things uh, don't happen constructively, but when you have a flourishing workplace, uh, it really is humming on all cylinders, and people really enjoy the work that they're doing. So we believe that the Christian-led workplaces, the church, you know, Christian parachurch mission organizations, even Christian-owned, and especially Christian-owned businesses, uh, should be the best, most effective places to work and attract people uh, to uh, the church versus uh, repel them. Al, your book opens with the topic from toxic to flourishing, the eight keys to a transformed culture. Uh, uh, I guess that's the overview. Uh, Fill us in. Well, the first chapter, we start off with a a story, an example. Uh, This was early on in our uh, organization, and we had a couple of leaders call and say, hey, you know, we know that our culture is not positive. In fact, uh, we do an employee engagement survey. We surveyed uh, at their request their their staff. They were probably 85 in this uh, office uh, or so, uh, sending missionaries overseas, and and it was toxic. Uh, you know, I remember the leader calling the leaders with the results, and I said, "Well, you're in the lower quartile," and they reacted okay to that. And then I had to say, "Well, you're actually in the lower five percent of the lower quartile," and uh, and it was uh, the, the organization was in disarray. People were really kind of at each other's throats. Uh, they, there was no trust uh, between uh, between people. And we started uh, a process uh, we call it the road to flourishing, where you know we we identified what the key issues were, what the what the problems were, and and helped to solve those problems so that they now have a, a flourishing workplace culture. People love working there. They do outstanding work and, uh, and you know, come to work uh, charged up every day. So that was, that's kind of the beginning, the story of, uh, of how any organization, we believe, can turn uh, a difficult, toxic workplace uh, uh, culture into a, uh, into a flourishing one. Well, let's dive into the meat of your book. Uh, the next, the, most, the launching point, Fantastic Teams. Uh, I'll t- say, tell us yeah. about that. Well, thanks, Pat. Yeah, so we've collected over 300,000 employee engagement surveys in uh, faith-based organizations. And what the statistics tell us is that the question, that there are eight factors that drive employee engagement. Uh, and uh, and this, isn't, this isn't my thinking. This is what the statistics tell us. And we just put a name and an acronym about around it. So these... The first one, uh, you know, they spell flourish. The first one is fantastic teams, as you pointed out. And so we see that uh, organizations that have great teamwork, both within their teams, across teams, where where people actually exhibit uh, true excellence in their work and they are able to resolve conflicts, create great teams. 
and that's part of a of a flourishing workplace is when you have great teams that can work together. So that's really the the first uh, the first element. Now tell us about life giving work. What does that mean? Well, Pat, uh, you know, especially the millennial generation, you know, they they want to do something that is bigger than themselves. They want to really make a contribution. They want to feel like the work they're doing is uh, is important. And that's what our survey results told us. This was probably the biggest surprise to me when I saw the, the results, the statistical analysis. And 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 then we also uh, see, based on a statistical program, how important they are. This is one of the most important elements. Do people feel like the mission and goals of their organization actually uh, gives them uh, a sense of meaning and purpose? And in order to do that, of course, uh, uh, people need to know what their jobs are. They need to know what their what their skills and their gifts are, and to be in jobs where they're able to exercise and develop those uh, skills and gifts. And Pat, we even find that uh, organizations with life-giving work have fun. We uh, ac- actually ask a question: uh, "I have fun at work," and uh, uh, and that has a, a correlation to overall employee engagement. So. Creating a workplace where there's a sense of meaning and purpose, where we put people in jobs where they can uh, use their, their gifts and their skills, and, and then where there's an environment where people uh, create an environment for fun, that just uplifts, that it creates a, a life-giving uh, work scenario. Al Lopez is with us from Seattle. <clears throat> We've covered the first two topics. Fantastic teams, life-giving work. Okay, next outstanding talent well pat you know your listeners are uh, sports fans and uh, and there's nothing uh in sports that's more important uh, in many cases or uh, critically important than talent you know when when you've got great talent where you're able to attract uh high caliber people to your organization you're able to retain them where you actually have a process where you can promote the most highly capable people, which which takes a little work at times, into uh, into key roles, and where you reward your top performers. Those are the four keys that we find uh, when it comes to outstanding talent. You know, right now we're in uh, what's called the Great Resignation. Uh, there's four million people leaving their jobs every month, and and there's a, almost uh, this month they just said. 10.9 million job openings, and so uh, the antidote to to the great resignation, we think, is is having a great culture. If, if you have a great culture, your people aren't going to want to go. So, so life giving work allows you to attract and retain uh, outstanding talent. That's one of the keys of, of the eight drivers. Now, <clears throat> tell us about uplifting growth. Well, we needed a U to spell the word flourish. This is this is uh, growth and development, learning and development, uh, but it really focuses on the relationship with the supervisors. And because 70% of of work and and training is actually on the job training, and so people grow and develop on the job, and that is really dependent on their supervisor or manager uh, to help them and guide them. Because we find that that in flourishing workplaces, employees feel like their supervisors care about them. Maybe even use the L word; they even love them. That they uh, the supervisors are competent and can actually help them with their problems and give them opportunities to grow. Where some, you know, we want every employee to have a sense that somebody cares about their development. You know, growth and development is just a huge issue, but it, oftentimes it's just. Uh, revolved around uh, around that supervisor's effectiveness, and and another thing we found, Pat, you know, <laughs> that came out of the pandemic is uh, the importance of one-on-one meetings and the relationship between the, the supervisor and the employee, and the, and the fact that they meet, you know, every week or every other week for at least a half an hour to to make sure that uh, that employee feels engaged and part of the uh, of the uh, workplace. My guest is Al Lopez, and we've got another segment with Al when we come back. Uh, The first topic to discuss is rewarding compensation. That's topic number six, number five, actually. Uh, Folks, when you go up to Amazon to order this book by Al Lopez, 
A Road to Flourishing. Um, check out the latest book that, that, that I've done. I did it with a, a good friend, uh, Mark Atterbury, and, and the book is called Every Day is Game Day. And uh, it's a 365-day devotional uh, with a sports theme. Every every one of these days uh, and the um, the piece that we do, it starts with a sports anecdote or story or reference and then uh, slides into a spiritual uh, piece as well. So I think you'll enjoy it. Every day is game day. And then Al's book, Road to Flourishing. More with Al Lopez right after these messages here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. You're plugged into the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment. AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour, AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. Now, here's Pat. We're back, and uh, Al Lopez is our guest. He's in Seattle, Road to Flourishing, the book, and as advertised, Al, Rewarding Compensation. Tell us about that. Well, you know, no matter what you do, uh, organizations need to show that they care about their employees and are willing to provide a competitive uh, level of compensation based on the skills and uh, and the market. And so, uh, yes, we find that rewarding compensation is one of the eight keys to an engaged uh, uh, employee and workforce. And so having competitive uh, salaries, having having satisfactory levels of benefits, paid time off, and retirement are what we see as, as key elements of one of the eight drivers. Now, I will say, Pat, you know, in the, in many organizations, this gets a lot of press, you know, and, uh, and uh, other best companies to work for, they talk about, you know, benefit programs that, uh, you know, with free massages and so on. But <laughs> we find that it's more about the life-giving work, and we're going to talk about inspirational leadership in a minute, than it is about compensation. So we need to make sure that compensation, compensations for most people is not the motivator, uh, the work is, the opportunity, the environment is, uh, but people need to have compensation. You just don't want it to become an irritant uh, that causes people to be disengaged. And now we do move to inspirational leadership. What are you writing here, Al? Well, uh, inspirational leadership uh, in a lot of ways is God-breathed, is, uh, is the t- definition of uh, inspiration. But we're looking for, uh, and this is what we find in every organization, but particularly uh, Christian faith-based organizations, uh, the character of the leader uh, that they bring to the job is critically important. So we look at and we've discovered that it's integrity, it's compassion, it's humility. These kinds of traits are key in uh, in the definition of a leader. So it's uh, the character. We also find uh, competence is, is important. Uh, one of our key questions, we ask the question, uh, our organization is well-managed. And so uh, having an organization where managers are competent and able to create systems and processes that make work go easier, that allows relationships to be positive and fruitful as well. But when, when systems are broken and relationships get frayed because of broken systems and frustrated, then then things don't go well. So it's the character... It's the competence, but also at the key of this is trust and uh, the level of trust that exists between leaders and employees amongst leaders and the leadership team. That is really the glue that brings inspirational leadership together. Um, Al, um, I, I'm, uh, a st- I study leadership. I write about it. And uh, here, I, I'd love for you to react to this. Here's my summation Uh, of what it takes to be a a great leader. Here we go. Seven things one must do to be a leader right and true. Have vision that is strong and clear. Communicate so they can hear. Have people skills based in love and character that's far above. The competence to solve and teach and boldness that has fearless reach. A serving heart that stands close by to help, assist, and edify. What, what do you yeah. th- What do you think? Is that? I, I think we've just uh, we've just met. 
much. To, <laughs> we're we're going to get to vision and, and communication here in the, in the next two <laughs> the next two segments. But uh, yes, uh, you know I, I mentioned already. Uh, Love is part of the uh, of uh, uplifting growth, a supervisor relationship with uh, the manager, the character, the serving heart, the competence. That's all part of inspirational leadership, and and uh, you mentioned boldness in that too, which uh, uh, we find you know uh, inspirational leadership leaders uh, must exhibit courage to uh, to do what's necessary sometimes, and uh, and I I love it. Yeah, great. Now, tell me about sustainable strategy. What does that mean? Well, that's uh, part of that is uh, the vision that you've just described in in, uh, in your poem, in a sense, uh, uh, which um, so so you know people often will ask me. A leader will ask me. I just was asked this the other day. You know, uh, are you talking about creating a workplace where people just you know love each other and and you know. Uh, things go smoothly, and they don't really care about getting any work done. And I say that that's not possible. Uh, people have a, de- a desire and a need to make sure that they feel like what they're doing is important and 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 that leaders are able to create a strategy where they can work together to get stuff done to meet somebody's need. And so this is all about, you know, having good uh, visionary goals uh, having goals that people uh, agree with and can get behind, that that having systems in place or a strategy where you're meeting the needs of those that you target, so you need to have uh, targets and be able to meet the needs of those that you're targeting, that you provide high-quality programs. Th- those are all of the strategy issues that we find really important in an organization. So that's that's uh, you know it's, it's vision, and then it's it's actually having an implementation plan, setting goals that are aspirational, uh, and being able to meet those goals that, that uh, come into this inspiration, uh, into this sustainable strategy category. Al Lopez is our guest from Seattle, the book Road to Flourishing. Healthy communication, that's the next topic for us, Al. You know, healthy communication is statistically very tied to... Uh, inspirational leaders because leaders need to communicate uh, uh, clearly and but <laughs> I was talking to a, uh, a church leader and they said well we have professional communicators and I said well you mean preachers don't you and they, they said yeah that's what we mean well my definition of communication is two-way communication not just one way where mm-hmm. where people feel like they're being listened to where their ideas are are encouraged, uh, innovation is encouraged, that these ideas are acted on, people feel involved in the decision-making process. Now, not every decision, but the ones that affect them. So that's uh, that's healthy communication. Uh, we also find that uh, under under communication, you know, if there's diversity of communication, if people feel like their, their ideas are heard, if they can speak up, speak uh, their mind in a situation and not fear feel feel uh, fearful. That's also part of, uh, of healthy communication. And that creates an environment of innovation and growth that really propels the organization forward. So, yeah, number, uh, number eight uh, is healthy communication. Uh, and that's uh, very tied to having, uh, having leaders be successful in their, in their venture. Uh, there's a question here I want to ask you. It's called journey inward. <clears throat> journey forward, your first steps on the road to flourishing. Uh, can you uh, unpack that? That goes with your courage and boldness uh, in your uh, in your poem about leadership. Uh, so, what I like what Ken Blanchard says about leadership uh, and the importance of self uh, of uh, servant leadership versus self serving leadership. And in order to be a servant leader, you need to be able to take feedback and listen to it without being defensive and take action on it. And so the journey inward, the journey forward is we would really encourage, we do encourage leaders to receive feedback in, a, in a, an honest, even anonymous way that, that they can understand how their leadership is being um, received. And, 
And we have found that that's the hurdle for many leaders to become even more effective, to, to take the lid off of it. You've heard of the leadership lid, to really take the lead, lid off and have leaders grow. Uh, we see that you know leaders learn by receiving feedback about how they are actually impacting others. And so the journey forward the, uh, is, is also a journey inward. Leaders can only bring who they are, and, uh, and they need to be able to grow uh, in that process. So uh, having the courage to, uh, uh, to receive feedback, to act on it, to become an even better uh, leader is the, is the first step uh, to the road to flourishing. And, and we've, we've seen organizations, leaders and organizations, be effective when they, first of all, uh, discover kind of what, what truth is, we love the, the quote, you know, the first job of a leader is to, to discover and communicate the, the reality, the truth of the situation they're in, and then to build off of that, to improve it, and then have it grow, have the organization grow. So, so discover, build, and grow is uh, what we recommend for that uh, first steps to road to flourishing. Al, do you think leaders are born or made? Oh, I think they're they're made over time, and uh, it's the crucibles of leadership, uh, the crucibles of experience that really build leaders, as well as uh, uh, you know, of course, reading and teaching and training. But uh, uh, you know, there are people if they don't develop, uh, they they might have a gift. They, I believe, leaders should, do have a gift. There is a spiritual gift of leadership uh, that uh, that people do have, but uh, are they competent? Are they able to use that gift? Do they hone that gift? Do they grow that gift over time is the, is the challenge. Al, uh, aside from Jesus, who are leaders in the Bible that you really admire? Well, you've probably uh, heard of the Enneagram. I'm an Enneagram 3, which is an achiever. And, and, uh, and Nehemiah is, uh, is an example that I think of. Uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. My first answer. I mean, he... Uh, felt called to uh, to go and rebuild the wall. He had a vision. He communicated that to uh, the king. The king then helped him fund that vision. And then when he got there to uh, see the reality, he pulled, t- pulled people together, even in the face of adversity, to, uh, to accomplish the goal that, uh, that he had been given, the vision that he had been given by God. So that would, that would be one of the one of the first ones uh, when I think of leadership in the Bible. Of course, you know, Moses, David, um, and the Bible is uh, filled with them. Um, uh, but those are a couple. Al, what's the best part about living in Seattle? <laughs> um, it is, uh, and I know uh, this is early in, well, this is wintertime as we're uh, having this interview. At, and uh, I know you're in a, a very nice place, but uh, the summer times here are absolutely world class. Uh, you hear a lot about rain, and it's, uh, it's kind of drizzling as we speak. But uh, it stops raining. Uh, uh, I say between July 15th and October 15th, you can't be in a more beautiful place. 75 degrees and sunny. I'm. Uh... Curious about one last question, Al. What, what do you want readers and listeners uh, to take from your book and our chat today? Well, the, the question that I often ask, and this is the, the, the scripture, uh, for any leader, do you know the condition of your flock? You know, that's Proverbs 27. Or, or uh, and Peter talks about this in 1 Peter 5. Shepherd the flock that God has entrusted to you, has put under your care. And so, so how, do you, how do you shepherd the flock? How do you know the condition of your flock? And I'd say uh, begin with you know, getting feedback, uh, uh, employee engagement survey, uh, a 360 review. Uh, I just encourage leaders, understand how your leadership is being received and learn from those who you're leading so that you can improve. Folks, Al Lopez has been our guest. 
a a quick announcement before the last break. Uh, We're trying to bring Major League Baseball to Orlando, and you can be a big help. Uh, This is this can happen. Uh, Orlando is now the seventeenth largest media market in North America. Uh, We have a website, OrlandoDreamers.com. OrlandoDreamers.com. Just go up there and check in and say, go get them. I like this. I want to be part of this. Uh, I'm interested in season tickets if it all comes about. Uh, We need your help just to show Major League Baseball that uh, we've got uh, community interest here at a very, very high level. OrlandoDreamers.com. Well, folks, we have a wrap-up. Right after this on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour, you're tuned in here to the new AM 990 and FM 101.5. The Word in beautiful Orlando, Florida. More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment. AM 990 and FM 101.5. The Word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour. AM 990 and FM 101.5. The Word. Now, here's Pat. Folks, thanks very much for joining us here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. Uh, John Hopper, <clears throat> our guest in that first segment, talking about his book, Questioning God, Answers to Questions Worth Asking. And then Al Lopez joined us from Seattle, and we talked about his book, Road to Flourishing, Eight Keys to Boost Employee Engagement and Well-Being. You can go up to Amazon and order those books. Uh, in addition, uh, our latest book is out. It's called Every Day is Game Day. I did it with my friend Mark Atterbury. It's a 365-day devotional, uh, uh, sports-themed, uh, sports story, anecdote in every every uh, daily devotion, and then it leads into a spiritual truth. Uh, I think you'll uh, I think you'll be pleased with it. Advantage Media Group put the book out. Uh, Just go up to Amazon and take care of it. We'll see you next weekend, folks, on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. The new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. Have a great week ahead, and remember, uh, do everything in love. Thank you for joining us for this week's edition of the Pat Williams Power Hour. Join us again next week at this time, where faith comes by hearing. The new AM 990 and FM 101.5. The Word. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. <laughs> 